Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got gotcha. you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZANDMHomes.com. In September of 2021, I interviewed the legendary Joe Keithley of the Canadian hardcore band DOA. For well over 40 years, Joey Shithead, as he's more widely known, has served the band as its longest-serving member, run Sudden Death Records, which has released material from bands like The Damned and Sham 69, The Vibrators, and Mojo Nixon, and many, many more, and more recently has been serving his second term as a city councilor in his hometown of Burnaby, British Columbia, a Canadian city of over a quarter of a million people. Now, as implausible as it might seem that a city that large would elect a man known internationally as Joey Shithead. Joe Keithley is a relentlessly active individual that has spent an entire career focused on public service, kicking ass, and getting stuff done. For fans of DOA, most would be aware that Joey holds true to the motto, talk minus action equals zero. It's a concept that he takes to heart with great passion and sincerity. It's the same slogan that has led the band to become one of the most legendary and respected hardcore bands in history releasing 18 albums, touring relentlessly, and adapting a DIY work ethic that would make most people choke. If James Brown was supposed to be the hardest-working man in show business, then Joey Shithead has to at least be in the top five. And on top of all of that, Sudden Death Records has just released the 40th anniversary reissue of their classic EP, War on 45, which not only includes the original eight tracks, it also includes seven bonus tracks, including demos with their original drummer, Chuck Biscuits. Also a 12-page booklet written by Joey himself, and it also comes in limited edition color vinyl, which looks just awesome. And on top of that, Joe has even released his first solo album in 16 years called Stand, which takes a Roots-flavored look at some very serious topics, as only Joey Shithead can do. He's going to talk about that and a whole lot of other stuff, too, and that's why it's always great to welcome back my guest today, Burnaby City Councilor Joe Keithley from DOA on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How are you? Not bad. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. Do you go by Bax or by Mike? Either either one's fine. Whatever you're comfortable okay. with. Do you go by uh, right. Keithley or Shithead? Which one? <laughs> which one do you feel better with? Uh, it depends if I'm uh, at City Hall. It's usually Keithley. If I'm uh, with DOA, it's usually Shithead. Right. My favorite part was uh, I don't know, but 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we'd be at DOA, be like stopping to like you know, a fast food restaurant on the road, and uh, somebody go, "Hey, Shithead, should I order for you?" And the people behind the counter would look at, it and I, and then I turn around and look at them. Hey, that's the nicest thing they call me. <laughs> Well, I have to say, for a rock star politician uh, who is practically on time, you you would get my vote. If I if I were living up there, I would have to vote for you. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I don't know what to congratulate you on first. I don't know whether to congratulate you on the solo album or the the 40th anniversary of Warren 45, which I have to say I have owned in various forms for a very long time. This has always been like one of my favorites, uh, my favorite hardcore yeah. records. I always I always thought this was. 
kind of underrated in a way, but just the songs were just always so great. Yeah, I agree. It was like it's uh, overshadowed uh, for us by Hardcore 81, but I thought it was the probably the most most innovative album that we did, especially at the time, like doing like a like a, a reggae song. I mean, not that others weren't. The Clash had done a few, and obviously the Bad Brains were like um, super, super super great band at that, right? You know, yeah. like uh, you know, friends of ours, and we played with them. So I just think, yeah, it was a, it's a great record. Like it's on a par with. To me, it's not a part with Hardcore One and Salt and Berry Change. Those are the three best albums. And it's like, you know, I've been trying to write an album that's ever good, that good ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got 17 more albums to go here. By the time you get to Treason, that'll put you at about 110 years old. We were looking up, uh, so I've done the 18 DOA albums, uh, three sort of solo albums. Um, so that's 21. But then I, I looked up... Um, the person with the most albums is not the most albums, but Dolly Parton's got 65 albums, right? Right. So I'm way behind her. <laughs> and then we did a calculation about how many uh, songs I'd written. And it turned out it was only about 250. And there was a comedian, Steve, um, something who was a talk show host, a comedian, songwriter. But apparently he wrote 7,500 songs. Wow. So, yeah. So I said to, I told my son that, I says, well, dad, you got a long ways to go. Very good, very good busy. <laughs> I did an interview with a guy almost a year and a half ago, this guy, R. Stevie Moore. I don't know if you're aware of the guy, but this is a guy who lives in, in, in Tennessee now, and he's recorded over 400 albums, all of them double wow. albums, and it's all home recording. So he basically puts out everything he records, scratches and dents and everything else, but the guy's like this world-class songwriter. Wow. His, his father used to play with Elvis and uh, yeah, just, wow. just a remarkable, talented guy, but he never stops recording yeah i think it's great uh i, I mean obviously you're gonna get stuff that some are some stuff better than others right that's yeah. just the way it is but if you keep going you're gonna come up with a lot of lost up and good chance it is good yeah you know? but one of the things that's, that's interesting about what what he does and, and it actually kind of applies to what doa had done for your entire career is you know you really both took a, a do-it-yourself approach to your music yeah. I mean, you guys were just you know young guys there were a number of you, not just in DOA, that started their own labels. I mean, the Sudden Death is SST. There's Alternative Tentacles. I mean, you guys did everything from making posters to booking gigs to, you know, finding couches to sleep on or providing couches for, yeah. for guys who are coming in and out of places. It's kind of weird how, you know, time has, has kind of, uh, you know, brought that back. After COVID, there's a lot more people now going back to those principles and releasing and recording music completely on their own. And, and taking full control of what they do. Yeah, I think you're uh, you're kind of better off if you're in control. I, I mean, unless you some sort of real commercial entity that is going to be like sell millions, you know, then, um, you know, but a lot of people, they become big. If somebody, the superstars that sell millions of records or, the, you know, millions of uh, Spotify um, downloads, then they often start their own label too. It was actually kind of funny because I had sudden death going and I kind of stopped. And I think it was about maybe 20 years ago, um, <clears throat> I approached Fat Mike about doing uh, uh, some DOA stuff. They went, you're crazy. You're better off doing your own label. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, it turns out, it turns out he's right. You know, yeah. so it, it worked out well. We put out like maybe uh, close to about 120 different things on uh, sudden death, right? You know, and you know what? Uh, a whole bunch of them missed the mark and didn't sell. 
Yeah. So I have a, a garage full of stuff that's stacked <laughs> up. <laughs> but it was all good. I put on a lot of records uh, by friends that I thought were talented and needed to get a record out and uh, put out like a lot of DOA stuff, right? So yeah. in the case of Warren 45, the, the reissue of it, the, what I've seen of it, because I haven't, I haven't got the, uh, I've got this one right now. Yeah, I'm yeah. still loving it. I mean, it looks fantastic. The way the vinyl on it looks is is unbelievable. It's it's just, you know really yeah. really beautiful. But they're limited edition colored vinyl. Yeah, with the red uh, right now. Yeah, we just did five hundred of those, and then there's the splatter, which we only did twenty of those because what they have to do at the press, there's a pressing plant. Like fortunately, they're called Clampdown. They're like ten minutes from my house here in Burnaby, uh, BC, and um, they do the splatter, but they have to top, stop the press and drop in these different bits of ink to make these bizarre things. And it takes too much time. So like uh, Billy, my friend who runs the thing, he actually calls those records stupid fancy records, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> And they're expensive to make. He says, I'll only do 20 because it takes too long. We've got too many records to run. Right. So I'm not waiting around. So if you want them, you pay a premium for them and you know, so on and so forth, right? But the Warren 45, I'm really happy with it. Uh, we had the bonus tracks because uh, Chuck, okay, so Dimwit, the older brother, the legendary Chuck Biscuits. Um, you know, I both grew, grew up with them in uh, North Burnaby. So he obviously played on the original uh, Warren 45 tracks, right? So to make it interesting for the 40th anniversary, we grabbed seven that Biscuits, his younger brother, had drummed on, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the legend is that, uh, not the legend, but the story is like, because we used to practice in Dimwit's garage when we were teenagers with our horrible, horrible teenage rock bands, right? Like, I think uh, Stone Crazy is the name of one band. And we we were awful, right? You know, like, uh, uh, but Chuck used to sit in there, like up on the bunk, and he'd, he'd drum along on bongos. And that's where he picked up all his rhythm was uh, watching uh, watching his brother, right? So I thought it'd be fascinating to get both brothers involved with their takes and some of the tracks um that chuck play on were the demos for the the actual war in 45 but we got in an argument he got in an argument with the rest of the band and quit yeah. and then and then joined black line so when that not, not bad band to quit doa for so I no think. not not bad but <laughs> but but when you you know, replaced them i mean you had wimpy roy on yep. bass and then dimwit on, on on drums it didn't sound like you guys lost a whole hell of a lot I mean, it, it just the band just continued to get as good, if not better, than it was on Hardcore '81. Yeah, real solid uh, lineup. Those guys were great. The Dimwit's fantastic drummer, like as good as his brother. Different style, yep. right? His brother's quicker, and Dimwit's more like the the brutalizer, right? So, and uh, <laughs> don't you never wanted to run into him in a dark alley, right? You wouldn't walk out tight. <laughs> and Wimpy's a fantastic bass player, although he, obviously he's better known. Uh, for singing the subhumans at the time but when we were that was our teenage rock man was uh dimwit wimpy and i and also jerry useless who turned out to be the bass player for the subhumans from canada right so we all grew up like two blocks from each other in like a small town but by the time so we're talking you know 1981 82 you guys were established by that point and doing a relentless amount of gigs i mean you guys were playing all over the place and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at least the first Canadian band that was touring nationwide here in the States, playing everywhere. It, your rep, and the reputation of DOA as a live band 
is absolutely legendary. I think the only other band that people say may have even been a little bit better would have been Bad Brains. But I mean, for the most part, everyone says DOA was unbelievable. Yeah, we had a lot of practice. And uh, yeah, people do say that. And that's um, I'm really appreciative of uh, people referencing us, uh, us like that. Boy, that was easy to say for <laughs> other people, not for me. Um, yeah, played so many shows by the time. It's kind of like, you know, that, I mean, that's why usually bands' first album or two are usually some of the best they ever do because they played those songs like a couple hundred times. Okay. We've got 20 songs. What are we going to do? Well, same thing we've been doing for the last 100 shows, right? So they're they're honed to fine detail, and I think that really helps. So, I mean, by that point, by the time we got part, something better change out, yeah, our, our first tour was in 79. Uh, I booked it. I had no idea what I was doing. We started in L.A. We didn't have any money. There was a record company that ordered us like 60 bucks, so we needed it for gas. We went into the president's office and sat on his desk until – he forked over the 60 bucks and that gave us <laughs> gas was cheap in those day, days. So that helped us get to Texas. Right. And we played there and we had three shows in Texas, but I forgot to reconfirm two of them. So it turned out we only had one show in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't much of a booking guy that it took some learning. Right. So, and uh, yeah, we kind of set the template. Uh, people give us credit for setting up that path and stuff like that. Like of the first places people could play. And then um, I started trading, um, uh, information with my friend Chuck Duskowski, basis for Black Flag, and yep. um, and we would go like, yeah, don't go to Can't Tell Productions in Sacramento because you never can tell. We got paid for that rip off, right? You know, <laughs> or like, or here's a good spot. This guy, yeah, a guy give you hundred bucks and I put you can crash in his basement type thing. Was it that kind of information? Like, so me and him trade that back and forth because they were doing a lot of touring uh, at that time as well. Obviously, with their different. Uh, you know, four different singers that they ended up with, right. you know, later on, finally ended up with Henry, obviously, right? Um, and all four singers were great. That, we played with all, all the different lineups of Black Flag. Anyways, but that, uh, you know, that sort of set, set up the template, right? I mean, I mean, obviously you have bands like uh, Dead Candies were going out playing shows. They were huge at the time, right? But they would like fly in. Right. And do a do a big show in New York or do a big one in Chicago, and nothing wrong with that. But like, we were like in a van, and we had a this crap van that Randy Rampage, rest his soul, uh, bought. And it was so bad we were in a snowstorm one time that Randy's driving, and the wipers would only go towards the driver's side. So I had the window <laughs> open. I had a string on. I had to pull the wipers back and go, and then so we could see, you know. And I had got my head out the window, not a little to the left. There's a snowdrift here, Randy. Yeah. <laughs> That's when do it yourself becomes a pain in the nuts. Yeah, it was. It was too stern. You know, I remember the early '80s, and I remember, I remember uh, watching, you know, Jello Biafra on the Phil Donahue show, and there was a right, <laughs> right, and he, um, there was so much resistance to not just the dead Kennedys, but really all those hardcore bands, yeah. you know, back then. And, and I remember your friends of mine whose parents were just out of their minds that their kids had become punks. And uh, it, it was <laughs> just so much resistance. And I always thought it was interesting because I mean, I have all the dead Kennedy records too. And it's like, you know, to me, I understand that what they were doing, you know, was satirical rather than literal. I mean, no one was actually going to go out and kill the poor or lynch the landlord, but yeah, there yeah. was so much resistance to that whole genre of music. You must have felt that 
you know, as well, going from town to town and, and having places with torches and pitchforks trying to push you out of the way? Yeah, I think um, you have like a ton of resistance, right? I remember like, oh, God, the guy tried to, it was, I think it was in Tallahassee the first time I went down to Florida. And uh, it was, the, the gig was clearly illegal. It was in some burned out building. The guy had 200 PA in there, right? And we got played about two songs. All of a sudden, these cops came in. And the head copy looked like Kenny Rogers, with the full on gray hair and the beard. And I expect him to burst into the gambler. Like, oh, I think I can figure it out. We'll play it with you, right? I'm a fan. And he, he just threatened us, like, you know, you guys play one more note. I got a place for you. And, you know, it's not very comfortable. I went, okay, we're done here, right? You know, but and people were like pretty, pretty rough. Yeah, like you said, stayed the stuff like Let's Lens the Landlord and all the different lyrics like that. People were coming up with like, these uh, really bold statements. But the one that really got me that started all this, that everybody knows, was like listening to the Ramones' first record. And yeah. they're like, beat on the brat. And the first time we listened to that, we're like, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Wow. <laughs> and the Ramones got ridiculed for having these like outrageous lyrics. But it actually like, broke this ground that, you know what? This is actually fun and satirical. That I don't want to go down the basement. You know, hey, daddy, oh, that kind of thing. They're like, you know, crazy stuff, right? And people took inspiration from those early bands. And obviously Ramones being like, you know, the to me, the the ultimate, like in punk rock. So you came up with it. Everybody tried to be more outrageous than the last guy. So we we spared no effort trying to be funny <laughs> and like, say, taking the name Shithead, right? So that it worked really well in the newspapers here in Vancouver. People were like, oh, this is new band. And the singer's name is Shithead. <laughs> so I'd be over visiting my mom and dad and, you know, they're, they were older and um, they'd get the local paper and my mom would read, Oh, there's an article about DUA here, Joe. She'd read it to me. And when it got to, and led by lead singer, and she saw, she pulled down the newspaper, looked at me very seriously. You know, I think you should use your real name <laughs> and like start away. <laughs> but mom, it's working. <laughs> But that, but you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that I think for many of us who really enjoyed that music is some of the lyrics were hilarious. Some of them were poignant. Some of them were downright filthy. And and maybe the shock value is kind of what a lot of us really kind of wanted to hear at the time. Yeah. I don't think you could get away with that today with the political correctness and you know the climate in the same way. <laughs> I just think it'd be received even worse today than it was back in in 1981. Yeah, absolutely. I think people would just like, they would not get it, right? But that's the thing about like punk rock. Why, why it was, it was attracted people for a couple of reasons. One that it kind of just broke this like barrier. You got to think about rock and roll at the time. Like, you know, disco was big. All the radical rock bands were gone or retired or, or, or they'd sold out. And, uh, you know, so then when I heard about punk rock, it, it kind of reminded me of like early rock. Like, you know, when the guys were like, before they got all tamed and became corporatized, right? You know, you know, they promoted Elvis Presley. Hey, I'm a big fan of Elvis, right? But you know what? It was corporate, corporate, especially when we started getting the movies, right? So, and like the rock bands that, you know, I was in high school, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and Country Joe McDonald. Right. And they were like protesting the Vietnam War and causing trouble and speaking up for people, right? And, uh, but by the time 77, 78 came along, that that was all out the window. It was all like, you know, kind of corporate rock, right? Yeah. If you ask me. But for a, a period between like 1973 to 75, you had a lot of this corporatized rock coming out. And I, I think when I was in high school, 
and I graduated like in 84 in a town in Massachusetts where you know, people thought the cars were a punk band. I mean, it was, it was right. It, I knew one kid that had a Ramones record and he only had one and everybody else completely rejected the, the entire thing. But when I went away to college and all of a sudden I started to get exposed to this stuff, a yeah. lot of the things that you guys and the dead Kennedys were singing about was stuff that really kind of started to open my mind to, you know, my own opinions, my own political beliefs. It's like all of a sudden it just kind of, you know, jarred something loose where I started to think about things in a much broader way. You know, for me, mm-hmm. it was really, really healthy to to discover that stuff. And you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a decade of, of, of disco and, and, and worse. Keep going. Sure. Sorry. Buzzer for the, buzzer for the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, what are you doing? You're doing whites, towels. What are you doing? Rags, yeah, cleaning rags. Oh, right there stuff. you go, there you go. But no, but, but it, it was a it was a, a weird decade because things had changed so much in music and it really just became staid and and boring. So I, I think yeah. that's you know hardcore was like a and punk. You know, the early stuff was like a lightning bolt that I think a lot of people just needed to be a part of. Yeah, and it took a long time before the record industry figured out how to uh, really sell it. So that's why like. You got the early early bands didn't really sell like a whole ton of records, but like in the nineties, they were like, "Oh, these Nirvana guys—they're kind of like punks, aren't they?" You know, and then uh, you had a few others came along the way, and then it got much much bigger in the two thousands with like, uh, you know, stuff like Blink One Eighty Two or whatever, you know, like more pop punk right, type thing. But in the early days, the record industry hated this stuff, right? And they were just like, "Is like this is like a threat to society type thing." That's what we're viewed as that was a was a threat, and uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed that, right? If you ask me, right? So, and you had to you had to watch it depending on where you were, if you were by yourself, right? I know I know a bunch of people that got beat up because they thought like you know, guys got green hair. Oh, he must be a fag. You know that that kind of bullshit, right? right. So and uh, you know and, it, and so it can it really made you stand up, but it was it was adventurous, and it was no holds barred. And that's what I was trying to say a couple minutes ago that that uh, is what drew people in because and then it was the you know, early punk rock shows. I remember we did around Vancouver. We'd have like a us a punk band. We'd have an experimental band. We'd have a reggae band. Uh, we'd have like a new wave kind of band, right? And people, it was because there wasn't many punks, so just sort of thrill seekers and bon beyonds, as you might say, came to see the show. Oh, what is this new stuff, right? And we're just like, and it drew in like a real artistic crowd because it was challenging and adventurous. One of the things that uh, DOA had always been known for, and I think it's you know, the more I think about it over the years, I think it's 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 a really great message, and it's the whole talk minus action equals zero idea. And yeah. I think it's actually a tremendously important and timeless concept because it's just so simple. But there's so many damn people who go out of their way to get in the way or to or to not do anything right. at all. Where did that idea come from? What was the, the germination of that? Yeah, there's uh, like an anarchist magazine here in Vancouver called uh, Open Road. And um, our our manager was an anarchist. The subhumans manager were anarchists. They were anarchist friends. And they both managed punk rock bands, right? So like, and uh, we saw this on the front of the magazine, Open Road, said talk minus action equals zero. So we asked them, hey, can we use that? That's really great. That kind of says what we are. And uh, they, you know, and they said true to Anarchist philosophy, the world is, belongs to everybody. So use it. So we, we, we took it and uh, 
put on records and told people that and then put it on like a, you know stuff uh, to be cool on the dashboard don't smash people you know we hand up these little pamphlets right be fine get fair and kind to people and we put talk minus action equals zero because you it's really easy to talk but actually do nothing and that's what like hey that's what most politicians job is they talk about something that they actually achieve nothing but i figured for like a bunch of punks to take that slogan it was just the time was right and uh we just lived by that and a lot of punks did adopt that i mean you think of uh i think of like ian mckay you know minor threat yeah. discord i mean there's you know, there's a guy, if there was ever a guy who kind of lived that expression, you know, there's a guy who most certainly yeah. did and, uh, you know, has done very well with it as a, as a result of taking that philosophy and just, and, and never letting go of it. Because, you know, that's the other thing. It's, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to take that. It's another thing to do it all the time. And that's really right. hard for some people. Yeah, no, agreed. I think that it's easy to fall back into not doing much, right. And just going along, you know, um, I mean, it's really easy to be a sheep uh, and it's hard to take charge of your life. But I always feel that people should take charge of your life and try and do something better for, for the world, for their neighbors, for themselves, for yeah. their family. Right. And I'm not talking like money. I'm talking about like, you know, let's get something done. That's positive. That helps people. You touched on it uh, you know, real briefly, you know, that sort of thing. It, it must be a weird thing for other politicians to hear you talk minus action equals zero because it's the kind of thing that really does apply to, to public service yeah. and to elected life. Tell me about in what ways did you try to adapt that to, you know, serving your constituents? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in my second term now. I got reelected, so I must be doing something right. So, um, so I've, been, <laughs> I've been elected for almost five years now. I, I think you just have, you have, you have idea, you have, I've always been an idealist, right? So, but when you get into um, politics, it's, you, you have to have a practical side too. So you got to find a way to convince people like your fellow colleagues in council uh, that this might be a better way to do this than what we've been doing for years. Right. And then like, and fortunately, like in my position, our current mayor, Mike Curley, um, him and I got elected at the same time too. And we got rid of this dreadful mayor that had been around for about 30 years. Hmm. And so it's like, <clears throat> it was Mike and I that unseated him because it's one, it was a one party monopoly for that for like, 20 years with the mayor and his cronies. And um, so that sort of set up, okay, now it's time for change in Burnaby. So we, we made like a really big change with um, working on and have provided a bunch of affordable rentals and more housing and uh, uh, care for the homeless and, uh, you know, d different stuff that I, I thought was important when I was running for office. So, but I mean, you gotta, like when you talk to your colleagues, you know, like, uh, they may be impressed at the fact I'm in music, but doesn't mean they like my politics. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I got to come up with something that they, either I convinced them or a couple of times it's happened where they they wanted to buck against it because we still, I'm running against the majority. There's like five people. There's nine of us all together, including the mayor. And there's a majority of five from one party. So they can pretty well block anything they want. But you know what? A couple of times, you know what? I got public opinion on my side first, and they just sort of looked around at the pack meme and went like, "Oh, oh, I guess Joe's right. Sure, yeah, I'll vote for that." <laughs> <laughs> That's the way you got to do it. If you can't convince them, you get the public uh, pissed off, and they're like, "Okay, no, 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 we want to change this. We want to do something different." Just so uh, so that it's clear here, the area that you're that you are, are representing, 
you're talking about like a city of nearly a quarter of a quarter of a million people. It's, it's a it's a pretty yeah. large area. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're the third biggest. That doesn't sound like much in American terms, much bigger country, but uh, we're the third biggest city in British Columbia, and we're right next door to Vancouver, which is the biggest city, and not from not far from Surrey, which is the second biggest. Anyways, and I, I think it's like it's really funny because we when I go to we have conventions where all the local politicians meet. And whenever I get there, you know, they go on the house things in Burnaby is the first question. I go, that's going great. And the next question is, are you on tour? <laughs> they, they all want to know about the music. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then it, the word got out that, uh, you know, not word got out. There's no secret. Then uh, these different charities and different cultural organizations started going like the, the mayor, the mayor, Mike Hurley, he came over here from Ireland, Northern Ireland uh, as a musician. Right, that's how he got his work permit to come into the country. So me and him, we do shows together where we play for good causes and raise money, and uh, you know we just do like covers and stuff like that. We don't do a bunch of radical DOA shows, but um, it's worked out really well, right? That just that because uh, music is the communicator. No matter how much hatred and horrible things have happened in the world, the one thing everybody loves is music. And it's like the universal language that you can't deny. You may not like all types of music that you hear, or there's plenty I can't stand. <laughs> but, you know, it does speak to people around the world. And it's like, that's the, you're talking about like DOA playing a lot of shows. That I'll give you the tally. Like we played over 4,500 shows and in 50 different countries on five different continents. Wow. Right. So it's a lot, right? That's an so, awful lot. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Cause I mean, I obviously, you know, being in the States, I don't, I don't know exactly you know, everything uh, that I probably should about you know, Canadian politics. But I know here in, in the States, we are so divided politically to the point where you're either right or wrong and there really is no middle ground. There's, there's, no, there's no way to build consensus anymore to the point where, like, actual political discussions are almost yeah. impossible to, to manage. And we seem to have lost the ability to be objective and to accept the fact that other people may have different points of view that are just as valid as our own. Do you feel that in Canada? Has that been part of that landscape or is that different it's getting that we're getting a little bit more like the usa uh our politics not quite to that extreme yeah yeah it, it bothers me that the americans are divided like that like you know i played so many shows down there i probably probably spent six seven years of my life in the united states being on tour and um got hundreds of friends down there so it's disturbing to see this division and you know because you gotta like like when you get elected, that's one thing I always said here, like, you know what, when I got elected, I'm here to help all the people, not just the people that voted for me. And if all your representatives, whether like the local level, senior governments, et cetera, took that attitude, then they, rather than just serving that one narrow constituency that got them in there or donated the most money or whatever, right? Um, it looked like it. No, I got to help those people in the that didn't vote for me too. And you know what? If you did that, probably those people that didn't vote for you go like, oh, I never voted for this party before. But you know what? That that person, that man or woman, did us a solid and didn't there didn't care that we didn't vote for him and you know got a a new sewer system in here or got the water cleaned up or or whatever you know said what the issue is right. So I don't know how to fix that division. We don't we don't have that as much in Canada. We're heading for an election soon. We have a conservative party that's not as right. It's fairly right wing, but not as right wing, maybe as uh, some factions of the Republicans. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have the sort of governing party that wins almost all the time. It's called the liberal party. 
And um, then we have a left-wing party called the New Democrats and the Green Party. Oh, and there's a fifth one called the Bloc Quebecois, who only run candidates in Quebec. And then, you know, they their issue is Quebec independence, right? So one of their issues. And they've been pretty successful with that over the years. <laughs> they tried a few times, came pretty close to 1990, like I think it was 50.1% to 49.9. Wow. Yeah, it was so we could have been two different countries, which would be a mistake because I never... Our strength, you know, like you got to respect the French language. Um, just like now, people are discovering you got to respect the First Nations language. It's sent First Nations people yeah. who have been pretty horribly mistreated uh, throughout our history um, here, as it has been throughout the entire Western Hemisphere uh, since Europeans arrived. You know, but I think one of the things that keeps Canada like a really great country, not a perfect country, is that we still have a fair bit of stability, and I think that's important in politics. That mm-hmm. you know. And that's the interesting thing about our local level. I say there's eight councillors, including me and one mayor. So there's nine of us. So we don't get up and grandstand, stand up and yell and point at the other guy, uh, you know, because these are people we've got to deal with for the next four years, right? You know, like, it's not like a hundred of them over here and 200 of us over here type thing. All yelling and trying to make a point on TV, right? You know, like, uh, you know, so... Stability is the important part of everything in life. So how, amongst all of that, do you have time to put together a solo record? Yeah, right, right, right. Um, that's, <laughs> I don't know. Here, here it is. I'll get to show the viewer here, right? Joe Stand, and that's the famous bridge, Iron uh, Second Arrow's Bridge, Ironworkers Bridge, that collapsed mm. in 1958 through a windstorm. And Stompin' Tom Connors wrote a song about it, and I covered it. And uh, my dad was working on that bridge, but he wasn't on that ship. And 60 guys died, steel workers. Oh, wow. Uh, when the, the, uh, like a big wind knocked that, they had it half up and it went into the harbor, right? Wow. But they came back and rebuilt it. And pe- people still drive over it, right? So, um, y- you know what? I like writing songs. Uh, I wanted to, with the, the solo album, it's called Stam. I wanted to do something that was like different with my buddy, Sean, who was producer, engineer. We said, let's take the Rick Rubin approach with Johnny Cash, where he just like, Rick Rubin got, okay, play me all the songs, and we'll pick out the best 12, right, make an album. It turned out Johnny Cash, of course, made like, I think, four albums with Rick Rubin that were all pretty, pretty fantastic. Really right? good, you yeah. Know? And I re- 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 revitalized the great Johnny Cash's career, um, one of my heroes, right? And, uh, and so we just said, yeah, we recorded about 30 songs, and then we put 12 of them into shape and took took our time. It got a little bit delayed because of COVID. So we actually started a few years ago on this. So we we had time to think about because there's no, you couldn't go touring, right? You know, for a long time. I listened to the record and, and you, it's funny that you're bringing up Johnny Cash because it's a real rootsy feel to the entire record. And it's, and it's, yeah. it's really cool. I mean, like, I think it's, the best version of uh, Folsom Prison Blues since since maybe the original. Well, thank you. Yeah, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was pretty sharp. But um, the one song uh, that really leaps out, and it's the the first single, is Fentanyl Blues. Forget the fact that it's it's a really great song, but you know lyrically, it's a really important thing. You're kind of addressing a real horrible scourge that's obliterated lives and 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 families, certainly here in the states. And I, and I got to believe it's 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 certainly worked its way up into Canada. Yeah, it's a, a big big very horrible thing that said like we've had in bc we're losing more lives than they are part of canada i mean and it's like i don't know why totally but you know like port cities are always the, the worst cities for like drugs right you know yeah. san francisco vancouver new york right like that it's the conduit right 
where it comes in from, right? So, um, yeah, we've lost tons, tons of lives. And, uh, and I think the thing is that I wanted to point out to people by writing that song is that probably the around here, the majority of people that have died from uh, fentanyl is not people that are living on the street. It's like people that you might be your coworkers or your friends or your brother or, or your cousin or something like that, right? That you think, oh yeah, there's a, there's a regular looking person goes to, goes to work, uh, you know, makes mortgage payments or whatever, you know, pays his rent and uh, that person could be dead, right? Because like, it's so, and you know, I mean, obviously the, the drug companies involved behind this um, didn't care at all. So, I mean, this is why they're getting sued uh, by uh, senior levels of government and, and justly so. It is kind of like a, like a self-created problem that, you know, they put together and, and, you know, people had to deal with because I mean, between the strength of opioids and the way people get uh, hooked up on them and now fentanyl is, it's just, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's just amazing to me that, uh, you know, it's, you know, I know for us around, around here, you know, we're seeing drug busts all the time, even though they're seizing stuff, it's, you're not solving the issue. You're just, someone else is going to get yeah. it. And I think that uh, it's the same thing, like, you know, uh, Richard Nixon started, it was the war on drugs, and he got, like, an adult uh, Elvis Presley to be his commissioner, which is, like, to me, one of the most bizarre photos, the two of them together, <laughs> right? You know, like, uh, uh, it just didn't make any sense. I mean, I, I guess Nixon thought it was a good good publicity thing, right? You know, master politician that he was, master untrustable politician that he should have to that, too, right? <laughs> But I think the thing is, like, it's kind of like you got to treat the drug problem uh, as a medical problem, but not a criminal, not a criminal problem. Because putting people in jail doesn't doesn't clean people up, right? You got to take, uh, you know, I don't know, five or ten step approach, like where you you get people off the street, um, you try and help them clean up, uh, you get try and get them back out working, get back into the workforce. I mean, a lot of times when people take take drugs, is because they've had a some sort of trauma in their life right yeah mental you know from their family from uh people they met whatever right you know it's like it's uh you know this is like an escape is what it is yeah it's pretty sad that's why i think the, the song provides a good message and like i said it, it is a great song and uh and a, and a good choice for the first single on the on the record i mean i realize we're talking about a, you know, a situation that's a little bit bigger than a, than a solo record but nevertheless I think yeah. you, I think you addressed it really well on that song. Yeah, thank you. The uh, the record does come. I thought this was really cool. The uh, we talked about the limited edition color, colored vinyl. The uh, right, it's, right. it's coke it's it's coke bottle colored vinyl, which I think just looks so freaking cool. I just I love that. Yeah, I I, I really uh, and people like we've done um, like the the Warren forty five we did with Cherry Red right as well. And I just, it's just, just interesting. And then some people like purposely, uh, and I, I totally uh, agree with them too in a way that uh, they just want the black one because like, no, the vinyl should be black. And that's the way it's always been and always will be. But if you get, you know, it doesn't cost that much more. So like if you get the colored vinyl, I think it's just like kind of a fun thing to uh, to bring out. And then people go like, whoa, okay, that's cool, right? So like, uh, I, I love it myself. So. Well, there's some you know, to me. It's what's really neat about it is, and, and a lot of people are, are are doing that with you know re-releases or any album. There is is colored vinyl, and uh, there's something kind of magical about it when you see it for the very first time. You pull it out of the sleeve, and all of a yeah. sudden, it's not what you expect. I mean, most people expect you know the black vinyl, but this one's orange, or this one's uh, you know yeah. you know you know sky blue, or whatever it it may be. And I just think that's a really cool way of 
uh, of doing it. Looks great. Yeah, it looks great. And people over the last number of years, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, the, when the vinyls become much more popular again, right? That uh, realize that this is the best way of listening to music that we've found. Yeah. You know, hey, it's better than Spotify. It's better than any download. It's better than CD. Um, my other old favorite is cassettes. But it's hard to find a cassette player that works anymore, right? I've still got hundreds of cassettes. That when cassettes went out of style, I kept them because they said they're still in vogue with me, right? <laughs> are, they, are they even still usable? Those things tend to fall apart after a while. Yeah. Well, I kind of learned how to repair them and stuff like that and tape them together. And, uh, you know, so uh, the old DOA van, um, their famous van was called the Reed Fleming after the comic book uh, garbage collector guy like we have an underground thing you have to look up replumbing that we had uh, uh, a cd player but there was also an adapter you could stick in the cd player that you could run a cassette off of right, right? and that's just uh, you know and when that band died i was just okay this is really sad this is the end of an era right <laughs> you know that that old that old band had all the memories that we had for like 20 years driving around that and uh, always up on the dash uh, right as soon as you got in, I always kept the Bible there, and I'm I'm not religious, but I knew if a policeman came in and saw the Bible, I'm like, oh yeah, these guys are okay, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> these guys are not as bad as they look, even though they got weird t-shirts and weird haircuts. <laughs> that probably saved you from getting arrested. <laughs> oh, and we got busted. Our van, our our van was broken down. It was in Idaho. It was starting to tour. And of course, it broke down the first day before we even got to one show. And uh, we're outside a convenience store trying to find a mechanic. And it, hours went by. And finally, these five, six cops came and like, okay, what the hell are you guys doing here? You know, and here you're trying to rob the convenience store. I go like, I said, sir, uh, the van's broken down. It's not much of a getaway vehicle, right? <laughs> he went, oh, yeah. And then we had this uh, garbage can, like it had a giant picture of Elvis on it. And you can tell one guy was he had sideburns, one of the cops. And uh, he was looking at it like, and uh, our drummer very wisely went like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we love Elvis. You know what? Every time we throw something in there, he goes, thank you very much. <laughs> and the clock, and that, broke the ice to, that broke the ice with the cops, right? And we, they let us go. <laughs> <laughs> DOA is still still a thing. In fact, you're you're heading to Germany yep. a couple of weeks. Tell me about that. Yeah, no, the tour's been canceled because I'm uh, stuck here waiting for hernia wow. surgery. Oh, geez. So we canceled hernia. Yeah, I'm, I two weeks I get it right. So um, it was supposed to be two months ago, but uh, somebody broke into the surgery clinic uh, looking for drugs and um, triggered the smoke alarm and uh, the sprinklers went off and. Um, destroyed the clinic so my surgery got put back so we canceled uh 17 shows in europe and wow. uh, we had a bunch of the maritimes up like nova scotia way stuff like that but we're back starting in september good and uh, we're, we're i and our, our booking guys are scouring and looking for like the best fit and so we'll be touring again and um one thing we do have going on next year be interesting um there's a documentary um scott crawford who made uh Salad Days about the DC scene. Speaking about Ian McKay and stuff, he did that. He also directed the 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 film about the Cream Magazine, Buster Bangs. It's called yeah. Boy Howdy. Yeah. So Scott did that, and then Paul Rackman. Uh, he's the director, and then Paul Rackman, who did American Hardcore, he's the producer. And the doc's called Something Better Change, and it's kind of about half about DOA and about half my morphing into politics. 
so we're, we should have that out at film festivals next year. So then the, the band will, where it's playing, the band will show up and play too, right? Wow. So, yeah. So, yeah, then, so that'll, that'll be exciting. And we should have a new studio album out by then too. I'm working on through my uh, forced um, <laughs> sidelining because the hernia surgery, I've been working furiously on songs. Right? Yeah. So, well, we're carrying all that stuff. No wonder you you, you got a hernia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's well, a lot of weight to carry, Joe. <laughs> yeah, well, when I, I, when I saw the surgeon about the about the hernia, I said, what shouldn't I do? He says, well, you shouldn't sing too hard. You shouldn't lift heavy objects. You shouldn't point on airplanes. And you shouldn't sit too long in a van. I said, well, those are the four things that's my very existence, <laughs> right? Lifting up a 42-pound Marshall head or a cabinet, you know, jumping around stage, you know. <laughs> I went, thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, Joey, it, it's it's great to talk to you again. You know, best of luck with the record stand. It's really yeah. awesome. It's great to, to know you. that uh, Warren Forty Five is coming back with a reissue. It looks fantastic. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. And best of luck. With your, best of luck with your surgery. Yeah, thank you. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> thanks, okay, Joe. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you. The 40th anniversary reissue of DOA's Warren Forty Five is out now. You can also pick up Joey's latest solo album, Stand. Both available from Sudden Death Records. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, rate it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can follow the show on all the social medias and reach me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again to ZM Home Buyers for their support, and thank you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.